Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. Joining me on the show today is Chris Din. He's the founder and publisher of Toronto Worse, a digital news startup leveraging innovative, cutting-edge technology to deliver local news in Toronto, Canada. Chris is an Emmy Award recipient in technology and engineering for his work at MDialog, a startup focused on integrating live video stream with ads, which was acquired by Google. Chris began his media journey at 19, selling ads for his campus newspaper. His passion for innovation led him to MDialog, and he played a pivotal role in modernizing the video ads ecosystem. After MDialog was acquired, Chris spent six years working as a software engineer on publisher ads at Google. In 2022, he founded his own publishing company, TorontoWorse.com. In today's episode, Chris discusses the various AI tools powering his newsroom, including a GPT-powered bot he designed to analyze, report on, and make comparisons about spending at Toronto City Hall. Chris, your publication, Toronto Worse, a local news startup catering to the Toronto population in Canada. But you're truly innovating the way you 
deliver and present news on your platform. And, you know, as a Torontonian, and though I'm not based full time in Toronto anymore, that really caught my attention and drew me just that I've always been saying that we probably need to rethink how we are presenting the news, what our homepage looks like. And that's exactly what you've done. You go to your homepage. It's a map. It's interactive. You can exactly know where you are based and find stories and have this completely new way of thinking about the news and interacting with it. And that's why I'm so excited to have you here on the show today, because you've also been experimenting with AI a lot. You have this technical background. You've worked at Google and now you made the transition to the news industry. So love that. And there's a lot for us to cover today. But before we go ahead and get started, I really want to hear from you and give the listeners deeper context really on what Toronto Versus and what's your mission and what's your story? Yeah, so of course, Torontoverse is a totally new take on what I call interactive local news. We're based in Toronto, torontoverse.com. Really, what you see is, like you said, it's centered around a map. We write a lot of stories, but we really try to make sure that all of them are really visual and anchored on sort of like a geographic or map-based experience. Sometimes that's like a single pop-up that helps position an otherwise, you know, basic story in space or in the city somewhere. Or other times it's a rich map-based data visualization, like a map of where all the bike thefts in the city were last year or something like that. The, you know, the, the underlying belief behind Torontoverse is that there's a lot of rich open data out there that we can use to tell the story of the cities we live in. This is true for most modern cities, but it's especially true in Toronto. We have great open data. And so we can use that sort of as a fabric on top of which we can build totally new local news experiences. Yeah. And I'd love to get into your background. What kind of made you move to the news industry, start your own publication company in Canada? So I was, I spent six years before starting Torontoverse as one of the tech leads at Google Ad Manager in New York. So I worked every day on advertising for publishers. I was on sell side, which is what we called the sort of the side of the business that worked with publishers. I worked a lot with video. That was where my expertise was. But I'd worked a lot in publishing more generally, sort of in, in my younger years, I was like heavily involved in my campus newspaper when I was younger and that sort of thing. I wasn't a journalist, but I was the ad and layout person at the newspaper for years, really involved in the business side. So for me, when I was at Ad Manager, one of the things that really got under my skin was that we were really successful. We were a very successful ad company. I think people know that about Google. But what we were doing wasn't working either really for advertisers or for publishers. And I think this is still very true. Online display ads are not as effective as they could be. And for that reason, you know, ad formats that, that Google has on YouTube and, and search and ad formats that Meta has on, on Facebook and Instagram really tend to do a lot better in terms of converting users and influencing their behavior. And, you know, it was really difficult. We weren't making anything new available for publishers to try to change that. You know, but at the same time, it was really difficult for us to do that because it's hard for Google to take responsibility for the success of an entire new ad format when it really has to shepherd that through a very diverse ecosystem of publishers. So it's hard for Google to own the success of that. At the same time, publishers are not successful. Advertisers are having a hard time. The, the ads we're selling are not working that well for them, not as well as some other things are. If you look at display advertising online, by the way, it's priced this way. It's priced like something that's abundant, but not very effective. But if you take a look at for publishers are on the other side of this, not seeing a whole lot of revenue from online advertising, certainly not the way that they used to from from print. I believe it or not, I began selling print advertising back in 2002. Uh, it was my start in the media business when I was working at the campus newspaper. And it was a much more lucrative operation back then. I think for a lot of reasons, you know, in that area, we weren't we weren't innovating ad technology and local news the way that we needed to. And Meta and Facebook, Google were really doing that during that, that window of time. And, you know, now we've got a little bit of catch up to do. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you started Toronto Worse, how did you rethink about 
the way you wanted to do journalism and what was the innovation that you wanted to bring into this landscape? So from my perspective, I felt like I'm really passionate about local journalism. I felt like what it really needed was like a better way to pay for it, a better way to make it all, all work, a better way to get local marketing dollars redirected towards local media again, the way that it was for a very, very long time. For me, the way to do that is to do, there's two things that really drive success in the online advertising business. From my perspective, one thing is data. You need to have data that you can bring to your marketers about your audience. You need to know your audience well. I fear in a lot of the industry, people will outsource this to, to Google or you know, get, a, get a cookie and you'll send that to ad manager and it's really up to ad manager and it's various programmatic partners in order to figure out who that user is and how to make money off them. But I, I really believe that as a publisher, we have to be the owners of that data. I mean, especially as third-party cookies and things like that are going away. And the other half of it is, I think, really compelling ad units, right? So these are things that, you know, right now we tend to think about like an, an ad unit is maybe like a, I should use the word ad formats. An ad unit is sort of like a, like a box or a banner ad or something like that on the web page or, or maybe a video ad that drops in. An ad format, the way that I would think about it is something that's a little bit richer, a little bit much more like YouTube's TrueView, where, you know, you not only do you, you watch the video, if, if the user skips it, then maybe the publisher gets paid, maybe they don't get paid, or I think the publisher always gets paid, sorry, maybe the advertiser has to pay, depending on whether the user actually watches the video, you know, but then if they watch enough of it, the magic kicks in when the YouTube view count kicks up. So can we design, you know, richer ad formats that in, are embedded inside the actual publication and, you know, and from there build content that really offers opportunities to do that. It's really rich, interactive content that people spend a lot of time exploring stuff that drives readers from curiosity instead of from, you know, maybe anger or ego, something that really answers the question, like, what do I want to know about my city or what's this thing I didn't even know I could learn about my city and really use that to, to build those rich local audiences. Yeah, so you really were thinking more about reimagining the way advertising revenue could come back to local publishers by having this kind of richer ad format and richer data that you could collect about them. I think today to start a brand new innovative publishing product in 2022, it's really important to come with an innovative monetization strategy in mind. You really need to have a business, I think, behind what you're doing. Yeah, and that was really, that was sort of the thing I think that was different about us. Like we had a lot of passion about technology. You know, I... Maps are great because they help us figure out what parts of the city people care about, but they're also a really good way to, to index local data generally, right? It's how we come to understand the city around us. You know, navigating a city requires some basic geographic understanding, just getting around day to day. And maps are really kind of how we can all unify, unify that together and sort of see the same picture of the city. And so in that sense, it makes a lot of sense for us, but it also dovetails with our more commercial goals of letting users move around the city and express to us the parts of the city that they care about. Yeah. And now, OK, with all of this deep understanding about your audience and the data that you've been collecting over this very short time since you've launched, you launched in 2022, right? And in this short period of time, AI also became this huge, real buzzword that came about and the advances that have happened. And you have this huge technical expertise that you also bring into your company. So how did you start with AI and start thinking about how you could integrate it into your publication? Yeah, I mean, this is a great, a great one. So I think the timing worked out so well for us creatively. Always for Torontoverse, one of our thoughts was code as content. Can we build digital tools and things that bring the actual creation of the technology is the content itself. It's not necessarily the platform, it is the content. And an example of that I, I rolled out in the early days was a sort of play-by-play. -play. Actually, one of the engineers our team built this out was basically AI-powered real-time play-by-play for sports coverage. So we'd have a Raptors game and we'd have all of the real-time play-by-play data collected from a, a sports data provider. And we would send that to a special model that we created with OpenAI. And it will come back with a little snippet of play-by-play -play information for us. 
And so this made for some, it was pretty clever. Sometimes you know, it was GPT-3 because this was back in 2022. We launched in December 2022. And it was, yeah, it was pretty yeah, good. It was some clever, <laughs> clever responses and uh, had a lot of fun with it. But, you know, this technology sat around it. It was never yeah, perfect. It wasn't a huge draw because it was like a little bit funny, but not like clever enough. But it was a great way to watch the game passively. But when GPT-4 came out in March, we tried using some of the same tools against GPT-4 and realized that it was blowing away our earlier models. It was just so much better than um, what we've been working with up to now and uh, really got sort of our creative energies going on our side. We started experimenting with how we could use this across the board. And the big one for us is we stumbled in the fact that we can make it call functions in our code base. So, you know, we're really sort of like a programming first kind of media company, really try to embrace stuff that we've created ourselves, technical solutions that we create in-house and lean into that creatively. And so this was a real example of that, I think, for us, because we were able to get it to do a lot of even basic article programming for us. So where things used to be difficult to program, we have like an API that sits on top of this rich collection of open data. We're able to teach GPT-4 with just a few examples how to really program new articles for us and really take a lot of these sort of like, you know, a lot of this programming, sometimes we have an example that's we have this piece of data and we want to do it just like this, but we want to tweak the colors and want to make it slightly different. The language you use often to describe what you want to build, if you, if you can give the original example and those that description to GPT-4, you can get it to actually create a lot of these, you know, digital creations that we have on the platform, you know, more or less independently. So we really started leaning into it as a tool for creating more of this, like, you know, code as content. Now GPT-4 becomes like an engine for helping us create that and do it sort of in a more accessible way, you know, rather than it being something that we need really deep expertise to do. It's something that we need deep expertise to do the first time when we can really let journalists lose to be creative with from there. So can you like break down now what your process looks like using AI in creating your content? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a research phase that we haven't touched on a lot just yet. We talked about Toronto Bot, I think, briefly. So that's the first phase, I think, of a lot of story generation is, is figuring out where the story is. And open data is great and it's awesome, but it's more like a, it's like a book you can pick up and check out from the library. But the interesting parts aren't highlighted anywhere. You have to go in there and find them yourselves a lot of the time. And this has always been the issue for us. Whenever I can get my, my hands on like a Q&A with somebody who runs an open data system, they often know where they've got some ideas about where the cool data sets are. I'm always asking them, where's the really interesting stuff? Like, where's the juicy stuff that you know about in, in these data sets? And so the first step really is, you know, trying to find that information. So Toronto Bot is a tool that we built uh, it's open source on our GitHub page that we built to, you know, really basically make this a lot easier. We're able to load open data sets into a SQL database, just locally, something very simple. We use SQLite, so it's super easy to install. And then use AI, so you can basically just tell AI what the schema of the database looks like, what data's in there. And then you can ask it in plain language questions about the data set, like how much did we spend on homeless shelters in 2022? And it's able to look at that data set and answer it for you. You know, a lot of these data sets answering that manually can be relatively difficult because in that example, specifically over various years, and even within a single year, there are multiple different programs and services in the government that contribute to what we might call services for the unhoused. But in general, you know, we can very easily teach those rules to, to the, the AI bot and it can generate these perfect queries that collect the data and then, you know, send back sort of more or less exactly what you're looking for. And you can refine that sort of by just going back over and over again and sort of tweaking what what didn't work and making it a little bit better the next time through. So that's Toronto Bot. That's Toronto Bot is mainly doing the research in terms of helping you comb through all of this open data that Toronto has out there, but helps you find what the interesting kind of insights would be for you to report on. And that's because you have the knowledge base and you know where to get the data and you build that on top of kind of the way you are 
you're connecting that directly with GPT and with AI, you know the and that's the source of it. And that helps you. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we have a huge, we have basically, we have a number of data sets. Right now, we've got the City of Toronto's operating budget. We've got the 311 service request database, the automated speed enforcement camera database. And we've also got a condo price index. The housing crisis is quite acute in Toronto. So we've also got a sort of a, a housing price index data set in there. Um, and this, this list is growing all the time. It's more like there's sort of like an onboarding step where we find a new data set, figure out the shape of it and get it loaded into the database. That takes, you know, an hour or so for a new data set. And from there, the real fun begins. You start being able to query it and figure out what you can find in there. So this is something that anybody, anybody on your team can actually just ask questions. They don't need to know SQL and actually code to be able to pull out these queries. That's the whole point is basically that you can you can sit there and be curious and query the data set. And we work closely with a data journalist named Matt Elliott here in Toronto. He runs a really awesome newsletter called City Hall Watcher that really watches the Toronto City Hall operations very closely. And he obviously has done a lot of this work himself. And he put together a really complicated Excel spreadsheet with like multiple years of data on different sheets. And you could sort of if you were really good at Excel, you could do queries across the various sheets. And it kind of started there um, when we first were doing this and then realized this would be way easier if we weren't using Excel, if we were using, you know, like a proper query language, what I would think of as a proper query language. And then from there, we found some prior art for people doing this. Like there's other people doing text to SQL generation out there with AI. And we realized, wow, this is something that could really solve like an actual problem for us. When you're trying to do database programming, you know, it's really about finding that interesting story. And AI can help you do that in ways that I think are not, not what you might expect. And where is this bot currently sitting in your newsroom? Like, how is your team able to interact with it? So there's a few ways to do it, depending on how interested you are in doing it. So you can actually check it out and run it on your local machine. You need an open AI key. They're, they're free. You can get it on the open AI uh, website. So some people run it directly on their own machines. I'm pretty sure that's what the City of Toronto Open Data team does, because they, they ask me questions about it. And I don't see them using it in the other place where we run it, which is our Discord server. So anybody can go in. You can join our Discord server. You can ask questions publicly in like the open Discord, but you can also just direct message your question to the Toronto Bot user just sitting there sort of like active in our Discord server. So those are really the two ways that it's accessible right now. Our newsroom, I think most people run it locally or they DM it on Discord. I think we run it locally because we tend to tweak things a little bit. Like you might load a different data set or, or you know, the first time we load a data set in there, it's going to be on somebody's machine and they're playing around with it, trying to get it working. And only after they've got it polished and had some fun with it, then they'll sort of upload it to the the main open source repository. So this is all the first stage of doing the research the Toronto bot has helped you. That's the first stage. Wow, okay. Now let's go to the next. <laughs> so the, the next stage, and this is one where I think it, this is the one I'm, I'm almost most excited to talk about the next one because I think it's got the most possibilities for journalism. Like I learned to program, believe it or not, back in 2006 or five and six writing CMSs for campus newspapers, like, you know, content, like publishing systems for, for campus newspapers. And the thing that I found always frustrating about CMS development, and I think this is true for all of them, is that you've got this one interface where millions of viewers are going to view it, right? It's the public one that, that publishes the website. And then you've got the internal one that gets viewed by hundreds of people, depending on the publication, maybe thousands, depending on the operation. And those interfaces are always, I think, are relatively difficult to add new features to because they've got a relatively low user count. Some of these features can be very complicated. And I feel that CMSs, as a result, have become sort of like a like a drag on the ability of um, you know publishers to put really interesting things out there. And so, instead of building a really complicated CMS front end in the early days, what we've done is just basically built a GitHub workflow. So our database is a private GitHub repository. We push into it, and then everything's published automatically. There's a hook, a GitHub action that publishes it automatically. And so we took this to the next level when the AI tooling became available, and we actually made a Slack bot that asks acts as our CMS front end, and 
I think, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but it's actually really easy to make an open AI, like a GPT-4 powered chatbot or GPT-4 powered product call real functions that are running on your system that affect your actual software. It's not that hard to do this in a, in a really controlled way. Can you break that down? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so what it means is you can basically, we've got a, a bot running in our Slack. We've got an, or what we call an articles engineering channel in Slack. And we've got a bot running in it. You can basically say, hey, I want to create a new article the same way you might create a new article in a CMS. And you can edit it. One of the things that, that AI does really well, so I told you you can get it to call functions. The way this works is you basically describe a function in, in detail using something called JSON schema, but it's really just a structured way of describing like a bunch of data that it can pass to you. So you'll say, here's the name of the function for us might be create article or might be like update article property. It's going to pass me the headline as the name of the property to update and then the contents of the headline that it wants to add. What AI can do really well is take ambiguous inputs. So that's like, you know, imagine what a reporter puts into a Google Doc for a story, right? Reporters like to write into a Google Doc and then they will often copy and paste into the CMS. The dangerous ones will, you know, the, the edgy ones will write directly into the CMS, but that is often a recipe for disaster. In this case, what you can do is basically take your Google Doc, you can point AI at it and say, please just load this into the system. And 99 times out of 100, unless you did something really strange, it's going to be able to look at that, parse what you've got there, and just create an asset in the CMS for you that matches what's in your Google Doc. And it can really easily do that again and again. You know, it can, it can sort of keep the two in sync pretty easily. So we use it for that. In general, our whole CMS front end is basically done via, via Slack for that reason. So you can basically talk to a chatbot and you can have it create articles. It can publish them to the website. Um, I told you that at the end of the day, we use GitHub. It can create a GitHub pull request, right? And this is sort of like, the, okay, you want to gate, is this going to go live or not? Every publisher wants to make sure you can control exactly how quickly things go out. Basically, the end result for us is a GitHub pull request that comes out of the bot that we then merge and that kicks off sort of final publishing for us. Just briefly make it in more layman terms what a GitHub pull request is and merging because I know it, but I know people who don't use GitHub would not know what that means. I'm glad you asked. So basically, GitHub is sort of like the it's, it's, it's owned by Microsoft, but it's a really large corporation where, where pretty much 90 percent of all the software in the world is stored these days. It's basically like, a you know, when you're developing a source code for Google Docs are great for writing news stories because they're going to keep track of all the changes you made. So if you want to go back to that version you had three days ago at 2 a.m., you can do that. And it works great. Git is kind of like that. It's, it's G.I.T. It's a source control tool. And really what it does is it helps you store many, many versions of your software as it's changing so that, you know, if you make a mistake, which, you know, happens to the best of us, you can roll back to that earlier change and figure out where things went wrong. You can sort of visualize this history of your software changing over time. Yeah, it's like Google Docs for code, basically. Exactly. And so you make it what you call like a commit is when you when you change it, you commit changes to your repository. This is the language that we use in the software business for making changes, you commit them. And so GitHub, which is this product that Microsoft offers that hosts people's code, and it's, it's private, like your email, nobody can see it unless you want them to. It then kicks off a basically have like an like a an interactive or like a reacting a system of reactions. They call them actions, where you can say like every time a change is committed to the repository, go and push that change live to the production environment. So I can we can configure that manually to happen on our end, and that sort of locks in a new a new piece of content for us. We kind of use GitHub as our database. Cool. So that's your CMS. And so now you're using Slack to basically just write the code for you in a way and interact with it. And that's your front end. You don't need to have like a whole CMS hosting provider. And this is the CMS that you've created. And it's just easy to use right within where your newsroom is already. Right. Yeah. It's, in Slack, you know, I really am a big believer that the next generation of software comes to us, right? It's going to come to you as the user. So rather than you going to the app or the website, it's going to find you on the platform you're already on and reach you there. 
you know, we use Slack for this because that's where our team was working already. So you bring the article into Slack and it sounds a bit strange to, to create your article through a chat discussion with a bot, but actually when multiple people, because we can, multiple people can contribute to one of these chat threads, you see the article sort of come together you know, through the discussion of the article. So people are chatting about it and creating it all in the same place. And the end result is like a history of why certain decisions were made that is really superior to any other version of this that I've done. You know, we've got I've, in software, we always have like, like this question, why was this change made? You look at a bug, bugs happen all the time. The question, how did I make this change? Why is it here? I'm going to fix it. But if I don't understand why it is the way it is, you know, maybe that's because it was just a mistake, but maybe it is that way for a good reason, then I might make a bigger problem when I come in and fix this. So being able to see this discussion, you know, as things evolve really makes the, the tool a lot more powerful than I think we'd expected when we first created it. So I'm just trying to understand the tool more right now. You create a story and you say, create a new story. You put the story in your Slack bot. Then others on who are part of the channel, like the editors, also look at it and then make changes and suggest those changes right there and write comments. How is that interaction happening and how is Slack picking that up? So yeah, okay, great. So there's a few ways that this happens. Slack has like a whole interactive UI built into it. So you can actually just click and edit the headline if you want to in Slack. That's the easiest way to do it. But imagine a more common workflow is you've got, so you've got a photographer taking a photo for the story. Someone's created the head, they've got a headline in there. Maybe it's a rough headline to get things started. They've got some, some rough body text in place for the article and a photographer takes a picture. So they can take that. Imagine that, you know, if you should be ashamed to say it, often on an iPhone or, or a cell phone, like a live photo of an event be taken, you can actually crack open Slack on that phone directly and, and drop the photo into the chat and it gets uploaded to the CDN. And this, if you ask it, you can say, hey, you know, please add that photo to the story as the lead image with this caption. And what the AI bot will do is create the figure HTML. Yeah, just you just ask it to do that. It's really... <laughs> really, the AI bots are really easy. Like when it comes to code, where the output's very structured and it's easy to know what's right and wrong, it's great at responding to these instructions. So you just add it to the beginning of the article with this caption. You can give it the caption and, and the credit, and it'll handle properly formatting the actual contents of that figure tag in the article itself. You you can take this a little bit further. So you know we do a lot of I've discussed a lot of database programming that we do, and there's a lot of types of database programming where you've got a lot of we do like a, a live events type thing. Every week we try to do like a posting about what events are happening in Toronto. I think a lot of local publishers do something like this. Event data can be really diverse. So different types of events have different types of data associated with them. And it's actually a little bit difficult to try to group all these things into one set of categories. There's just so many different types of events that can happen and they're all subtly different. So one of the things we're able to do is instead of, you know, when it comes to each event, instead of formatting like the HTML for each event one by one or trying to come up with a system that captures all events, we can actually collect the event data and then we can show examples of a bunch of events that we like to GPT-4. We can say, can you please format all these events for us? So this can often be a complicated like templating program where you have to kind of design a solution for every possible input. And then you can write sort of like a template piece of code that will output it correctly. Or you can have somebody manually, which, you know, I've done many times go and format huge amounts of HTML to make sure it looks good. Or you can get AI to do that for you. It's really good at that kind of work. And so it's mainly been helping you build that, as you said, your, I feel like your slogan needs to be code as a content. Toronto Wars needs to have those shirts because honestly, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd buy one. <laughs> it works great with the journalists, I think. Yeah, people really, I, that's, that's how we think of it, right? Is, is code as content. And in, in this case for us, it's really about, you know, code to make content. So we really try not to use ever to use AI as the voice of what we're doing, but as a tool that lets us create more effectively. And yeah, this is another example where we're using it to basically automate what we do. So it's really, it's not a chatbot that's as much about getting information as it is about automating things. And the real benefit is when something new comes up, you know, adding a new feature to a CMS can be really complicated, especially when there's a lot of UI work that has to be done to make it happen. 
if you can describe your feature in plain language, you can almost always add it to a like a chatbot in about 15 minutes. It's really easy to do as long as you can describe it in plain language because you can really use the, you know, it might not work perfectly the first time. When you build a UI and put it in a CMS, you expect it to work the way it's displayed. You know, when you build something with AI, you don't always know what features you have when you first release it. You have to kind of play around with it, see how well it performs and, and find out. But, you know, over time, you'll find that it can be a really, a really strong helper just for dealing with a lot of the work that slows you down as a journalist or as a content creator. I see so many opportunities for us to use it that way that I don't think we'll run out anytime soon. So your whole focus about using AI in the newsroom is not using AI to write the news, but it's all about using AI to help us with the workflows, help us with the research, help with writing the code so that you don't spend that much time in production because your website is heavily based on that interactive nature that needs to be coded in. So your entire focus has been on the coding part, using it for workflows. And have you touched, experimented with the writing part of AI there? So I've done a lot of these chatbot developments. I've interacted a lot. My personal feeling is that GPT-4 has a voice that's really hard to shake when you use it for content generation. There's a use case I think it's great at, summarization. It's incredible at because summarization is really hard work. And even though it's got the GPT-4 voice when it comes out, you can really, you can get a really great summary that you can then go and apply a proper like journalistic voice to for recording. I think it does great at that. In general, headline writing is, you could think of it as kind of like a subset of that a little bit. I may be old school. I used to lay out a print newspaper and headlines were always trimmed to fit perfectly. And to me, there's like an art to a perfect headline that fits just right and sounds just right. But if you're maybe less picky, depending on the context, I think you could do great there. But really for us, um, outside of the summarization use case, I really try never to use it for pure content generation, more for like formatting, generating queries, writing code, calling functions in the back end, that sort of thing. And how big is your entire team right now? So we have basically, there's three of us that have built Tronoverse over the course of the last year. There's two developers and an editorial coordinator. We rely heavily on a broad network of contributors, though. So we have dozens of contributors above and beyond. They just don't work for us full time on the platform. They help create the content that is published on the platform. And so you focus more on the tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And that's why you're a tech forward media company building out the interaction for your users. And, you know, from part of it is, is me personally, I, I love the, you know, there's a new trend and there's been a trend in the last few years in journalism where people, you know, journalists are becoming independent. They're building their own audiences on newsletter platforms and things like that, um, or, you know, or other platforms, streaming platforms and so on. I feel that's good for users. I feel like a direct relationship between journalists and the readers is great. So I think, you know, one of our early intentions was to really find those independent journalists and help them find a larger audience sort of work with them, let them maintain their independence, but find a way that you can bring something to their publication that they couldn't do on their own. 
And that for us is sometimes or often technology. Wow. Yeah, I love that kind of cause with which we are building your company right now. So we have your Toronto bot and you have all of this AI innovation coming. And especially with your the cause that you're having with bringing and highlighting all of these voices and supporting independent journalists, I just saw that recently you just last week said that you will have to be slowing down and cutting costs at Toronto Worse. What's happening? Good thing to talk about. So specifically what we're slowing down is a lot of the money with sort of we've been investing in the sort of independent content from third party freelance independent content producers. So Canada's got a little bit of a problem in the publishing industry here, especially for smaller independent publishers like us, digital publishers. Meta, Google and the Canadian government are in a bit of a dispute right now. The government passed a law called the Online News Act here in Canada. And the goal really was to get Facebook and Google specifically, or Meta and Google specifically, to finance the work of journalists, you know, journalism organizations in Canada, not any particular types, very broad-based, anybody employing full-time journalists. And they wanted to do that on the grounds of like for every link shared on the platform, Google or Facebook, there would be some compensation paid to the, the various journalism organizations. Unfortunately, you know, the reaction from Facebook was very strong. Like I said, we really don't want to be paying for each individual link that, that runs on our platform. And we really feel that we're not comfortable with this law as written. So they decided to block, proactively block all news publishers, not just Canadian publishers, basically all news is blocked on Facebook here in Canada. To me, the dispute that is not, not really directed at us, we're collateral damage in this dispute. If things had sort of succeeded, our type of publication would really, if the government had succeeded in, in getting Facebook to sort of like pay this link tax or, or whatever they would describe it as, you know, we wouldn't have seen particularly very much benefit from that as a small digital independent publication it was really geared around supporting people that employed journalists full time which if you sort of look back at my strategy from before is sort of not in line with it. I'm actually okay with that. From my perspective, I'm okay with not getting any support from the government program that's out there. It's not super important to me. What's unfortunate is getting hit so hard by the consequences of this dispute, despite not likely seeing a lot of the upside. Facebook's extremely popular and users on Facebook, they interact with content in a way that's different than users on a lot of other platforms. In my experience, they're very engaged. Maybe they're just itching to leave the platform and go do something else, but that works great for us news publishers. And in terms of getting your content in front of new people right now in 2023, there's not another platform that can do it as effectively as Facebook. I want to replace them from a marketing perspective, at least with small, you know, medium sized local businesses, but we also need them in order to help reach our audience. So our plan right now is basically to try to cut our costs, spend a little bit less on content and wait until publishers in Canada can get access to uh, the Facebook platform again. I don't know when that'll happen. This is a political dispute, but that's our plan. So you're basically just going to hibernate, as you were saying, and like ride this wave. And you have the advantage of being able to cut costs right now as a startup. Yeah. So one of the things that we have working for us is the ability to cut costs quickly. All of the team was small and they understood the situation we were in. And we sort of were able to get together and, and uh, figure out how to get the cost down to, to next to nothing. Well, as much as we can do, we're still going to keep publishing. We're still going to keep working on our signature big data stories, our big data visualizations and things like that. But I think as, as a lot of your readers will know, building a publication requires more than just one type of story. So, you know, we spend a lot of time working on art stories and transit stories and things that, you know, we won't have the time to to do as much of. I mean, frankly, we've lost a lot of our audience by losing everyone on Facebook. No one on Facebook can even post a link. They can't share a link to any of our content. So, you know, you're basically completely lost on that platform. And for us as a new publication that launched in 2022, that was where we were finding a lot of our users. You know, we're on LinkedIn and we're on Twitter and, and we're on X and we're on, you know, Mastodon and Post News. But at the end of the day, you know, Facebook is really the most active of all of those platforms. And without it, you know, we're really in a tough spot 
So yeah, the plan is to try to weed, weed it out. Focus on the technology, right? We can make the technology better and then worry about audience um, once we have access to them here in Canada again. So are you still going to be focusing on the AI innovation and the product that you're building in the newsroom? Is that your strategy now to focus more on the code? Yeah, I mean, the AI, what it's done really is brought down the cost of our operations day to day dramatically. Like our daily newsletter, we can run it run through a Slack bot. So it's also AI powered, but it's less fancy. It's more like it's just sort of like orchestrating the AI bot for us. It's not doing a whole lot, the actual content generation in that case. Talk to me more about that. What is it doing? An AI powered Slack newsletter? Yeah, I mean, so we just we use the same approach that we use for CMS front end to, to handle our newsletter. So our, our newsletter is, is we scan 35 publications in the Toronto area every day looking for news stories. And uh, we basically have, so again, it doesn't, these stories are links from other publications. It's not coming up with them itself, but it is basically like the AI is collecting them all together, formatting them and presenting them to us in Slack. And then what we can do then is sort of like reorder them, remove ones that seem like duplicates or maybe are a little too old for the daily newsletter. Um, And then we can add some like some headings that like sort of like kind of clever puns or whatever that, that tie the whole thing together. And then we publish it. So, so the APIs, so right in, in Slack, there's like a little publish button once we're happy with it at the bottom. It's that same thing about content coming to you. We, we discuss the newsletter in Slack every day anyway. So now we're, we're making it as we're discussing it in the chat. And, uh, and that it's AI powered, but the AI doesn't do much except for just make sure that we're able to format things correctly. I sort of mentioned before, you know, if you've got a lot of disparate content, you need to format it well. AI is really good at making that work for you. It doesn't do the heavy lifting. That's really, you know, we're just linking to other publications. AI doesn't have to do much to make that come together, but it does help us with the process of the newsletter. You know, what I really love about just learning more about Toronto Wars is I've always been saying that we need to shift the narrative about the news industry of using LLMs to write the news. I feel like that's just not the place we should be focusing. We need to be focusing on using LLMs to improve efficiency, the business operations, write code as you're doing and the focus that you're having on like code as content and you're keeping on saying that like that you can see it throughout the way you've been evolving and thinking about building your news company. You're kind of an outsider from the news industry. You came from a tech background. There are very few people like you and I who entered the news industry with a tech background. And we are seeing this moment of AI innovation in a completely different way. And I want to get your thoughts. What do you think the news industry should be focusing on right now? And what's missing in the conversation? So I really feel like we've got to be focusing on more powerful tooling for content creation. So I feel unbelievably excited as somebody who, you know, I think there's a moment where I think, I remember when I first encountered GPT-4 and I I really saw what was possible. My brain was just running on double speed for two weeks while I was sort of working through all these possibilities. And I... I really feel like you, you can see, being able to this position where I can see what's possible. And it's, it's actually not that easy to see what's possible because at first blush, without really getting your hands dirty and messing around with, with the technology, it's, it's a little bit difficult to understand what it can and can't do. But once you get a really, you know, I've spent at this point hundreds of hours talking to and arguing with GPT-4 over various features that we're building, you know, you come to really get an understanding of what's possible. And as terms of content creation, what we're going to be able to build is really that's the sky is the limit. I don't know what journalism is going to look like in five years or 10 years because it's really hard for me to look past all of these possibilities, to extrapolate past all of these like incredible possibilities and see what what is going to be the thing that sticks. I think we're learning every day, you know, as it, you know, we're, we're experimenting with chatbots today. I don't know if that's where things are going to end. I don't think so. I think that's just where this like exploration is starting. Um, what more is possible? I'm really excited that we get to, to be the people that help figure that out. Like what is the UI paradigm, UX paradigm that's going to be what sticks is chat didn't exist a year ago. We, you know, this chatbot interface came 
in November, I think was it of 2022, like it was not that long ago that ChatGPT arrived. And, you know, what's been created since then, not just with us, but with, you know, so many different other groups is incredible. You know, I think we've got multimodal AI coming soon, which is instead of just large language models from text from like varieties of different media, I think that's going to be a whole other step up in what's possible. I sort of spent a lot of time trying to prime my brain for like when these new models become available and how we can rethink storytelling, you know, in light of all these new tools. I really like couldn't agree with you more when you say that I don't want AI to be telling the story. I feel GPT-4 has a voice and it's it's sort of like hard to describe because nothing like this has ever existed before, but it's a strangely soulless voice that doesn't speak from a point of view. It doesn't have any history. It doesn't have any perspective. And I mean, these are things that are sort of, they're, they're very unusual feelings to have when you're talking to somebody, but it really, you know, you get this feeling over time that it's sort of like a placeless thing that, that doesn't really exist anywhere. And when you're reading, point of view is so important when you're consuming content, understanding, you know, like that vision that somebody else has that they're sharing with you that like meeting of two minds, you know, it's not just language and statistics put together. There's like, there's, you know, somebody else's story, a person's story that you're listening to. And I think that is such an essential part of journalism. The focus for us is really how do you use AI to amplify that, you know, to, to make that special thing easier to access, cheaper to build, you know, to make these voices like easier to find all that sort of fun stuff. Absolutely. And I think we are in the business really of creating knowledge and creating that analysis and bringing bringing meaning to stories, whereas LLMs don't really have any meaning in what they're doing. And it's focusing on language generation. It's focusing on generating code and it's just replicating patterns of data that already exist. And that's not what our product is. And we know we've already gotten like product market fit as a journalism, as a journalism industry. Like as a journalist, we know that news is what people want. They will open it. You know what kind of content they want. That's our product. It's not really using AI now to build our product because we know how to do that well. It's using it for all of the existing or maybe more burdensome tasks to kind of get to that final product for us. I imagine those old time newspaper reporters where they would like, you know, like a big thing had just happened. They'd go to the phone line with his old two fashioned phones. They'd be like talking, like trying to, you know, dictate their, the text of the article of what had just happened into, uh, into the phones that somebody, you know, could record it, I'm sure at the newspaper office and get it out right away. Like the Hindenburg, Hindenburg collapse, you need to get this to the news office right away. You know, maybe the future journalism like tools could make it a lot more like that, like a lot more like you're witnessing, you're capturing the moment, you're telling it. And technology just lets you do that, you know, so much easier in, in, in a much clearer way, in a much more lightweight way. I feel like the future of being a journalist is potentially really exciting, but I, I really, I don't want to be listening to AI. That's, I want to be, I want to be seeing people leverage it to tell their stories even better. Also, as these AI generated content become more popular, anybody can go to ChatGPT and write content. I feel like journalism is always going to be an industry that's not really ever going to evolve to all AI generated content. That's never going to happen. That's really difficult for to imagine that we would let it happen to our industry. And so if you would think about it in five, 10 years, maybe this would really be the industry that's still having a human voice that's constantly going because we are bringing in the knowledge into the industry. We'll always have that human voice. Yeah. One of the things that's so frustrating about the Facebook ban here in Canada is that there's this wave of social interaction like this that happens across people that's going to happen anyway. You know, that's a big part of just how people want to interact with each other, right? That's not, AI is not going to change that or get rid of it. It's just this, this like electricity of social interaction between people. And, you know, we as journalists are big contributors to that and we help shape it, regulate it, you know, make sure that it's healthy for society. I mean, maybe not, a, I mean, maybe not a journalist, but I'm a journalism assistant, somebody that helps people get journalism out there. You know, we're, I think, a key component of, of that ecosystem. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that 
continuing, you know, being able to play that role more effectively, being able to play that role with more data, being able to have your data be, be more accurate, being able to, you know, get things out quicker with less friction. I mean, these are, to me, the, the really exciting promises of, of AI. Yeah. And a fun question I'm just thinking about while talking to you is because you have this innovative spirit and you're bringing in so much of innovation into the work that you're doing through Toronto Worse. What would Toronto Worse look like, I would say, with a bunch of investment into it and into how you are conceptualizing tech as being a tech company, but bringing in or like verified information from voices and independent journalists in Toronto and giving them a platform to interact with their audience through this innovative tech that you're building. What does the future look like there? This is a good point. We're just scratching the surface at what's possible. And we're really, you know, I talked about how we're all going to experiment with AI going forward to find out what works. We've been experimenting with what works at Torontoverse. What would we do with more money? So I think to me, the big one is to really, so let's exclude expanding to other cities or anything like that. I would love to launch in New York and the Bay Area. Those things are like my, when we hit product market fit in Toronto, those are places I want to go. But in terms of really going deeper into the Toronto market and building a richer product, I want to see a live map of almost all the open data in the city so people can explore the city interactively. Imagine like a Google Maps, except instead of seeing places to go and navigation, you're, you're being able to understand sort of these hidden systems that exist all around you, from the sewer system to steam pipes in a city like Toronto and New York to, you know, traffic systems and, and things like that. I mean, I really want to bring as much of that into the site as possible. And then what I want to do is be able to make all that data that we've collected available to a broader set of creators to be able to tell stories. One of the things with our platform is that you're able to use AI to do a lot of interesting programming. We alluded to this, right? Our CMS is a Slack bot. And you can actually ask it to do a lot of the programming that you need to do as a journalist to create really rich, interactive articles. But this is a process of experimentation. So you have to, you know, you have to learn how to do it and sort of like learn this new approach to, to building content. For me, if I had more money, you know, the other side is building like a broader group of journalists that are comfortable using this technology that are able to build interactive content themselves. You know, and from there, that's where the, the audiences appear and local ad markets and things like that start to pop up. But I think that the next phase is really about, you know, richer, richer content and more journalists that know how to use these tools. I'm so excited about what you're building and because I can directly see it on Toronto. Like I have to say the first time I came on Toronto Wars, it was an interactive map and I was just like taken aback, like what's happening? And I could, I instantly went to the place in downtown Toronto where I used to live and I was seeing stories pop up over there. And like, I used to live by the harbor front and I remember you had a story about, like I was able to see exactly like what's happening in the city and it was just so interactive. And I was like, I wish I was, there right now. And this would be the place that I would be interacting and getting my news from. I have one really cool feature that I, I want to mention before you get a chance to go away. So one of the things AI is really good at is named entity recognition. So you can give it a piece of text and it can pull out, you know, what entities are mentioned in it. Something that we're really good at at Torontoverse, because we're so geographically oriented, is give, being given a place name or an address and then turning that into physical coordinates on the map, like geographic coordinates that we can map people to. So one of the things we've been working on for the last little while, this is a big project, so it's going to take us a while to bring it to, to sort of completion, is we're, we're crawling all of these sites, building our newsletter all the time. We're looking at all this local content. The plan is to try to take all that content, figure out where it's taking place. Like, where is the story happening? Can we find street names or locations or landmarks in the content, geocode those, and then drop those links on the map, and then continue to do this for years, two years, three years, and then over time, build like a, you know, obviously it's probably not going to be the main page on Torontoverse, but have the ability to sort of like look at your neighborhood and see news stories that have been recorded there over the last like five, 10, however many years we're able to access. 
really be able to place those effectively on the map for relatively low labor costs. You know, like, I mean, imagine the amount of time it would take to try to do this manually, to geocode everything and place it. We can do this in real time with AI relatively, relatively easily. Wow. Okay. You just blow my mind in terms of how I... uh... (laughs) If somebody else wants to build this, I'm not going to be offended. I really want this thing to exist because I just feel like local news is... So the thing about local news is you might think this is old news or, or this is not that important or if something, you know, happens across town, it has to be really important for it to be relevant to you. But if something happens on your block or in your neighborhood or, you know, at the places that you go every day, those things are important to you, you know, no matter when they happen, you you almost always want to know about those sorts of things. You'll be curious about them. So I think, you know, you can really leverage this like differential relevance of news to people to try to show like, here's local stuff, here's stuff you care about. And now you're able to find an audience. You know, I think a big part of success is finding an audience, a broader audience for each individual piece of content. Not how do we publish more content to find more, more of an audience, but how do we get more of an audience for each individual piece? And this is about finding the people it's super relevant to and that, that's the same thing that local advertisers need, right? They, they have this, a flavor of the same problem. So that sort of underlying insight is really where I think a lot of the opportunity lies. And you can really build on to that historical context of those local areas and the news that you're already reporting in those areas, right? Yeah. And then, you know, as, as AI gets better at like building UI experiences for us, as we're better at teaching it what to do, I'm excited for what happens when we're able to program inter- interactions that are so complicated we couldn't imagine them ourselves but we're good at telling the AI what we want to have happen. Like, can we build data visualizations that are so complex we wouldn't be able to cost-effectively maintain them ourselves, but with the help of AI, we can. I think that day's coming, you know, 2024. <laughs> so. This is honestly one of the most exciting futures that you've painted for us about journalism, the potential of journalism here. I'm super up, like I'm super excited about it generally. I think, you know, I think in software circles, there's maybe a little bit of intimidation about what happens when you make technology more accessible, when you make programming more accessible. What does that mean for the expert programmers? But, you know, journalism has always, as long as I've known, had the problem of there's so much information, there's so much interesting stuff, and there's not enough technical expertise applied to it. So to me, this is like an opportunity ready to explode. Yeah, exactly. I think journalists and like people in the news industry, you don't need to have that deep technical background. Now you can just tell AI what you need to do and be able to create all of these deep UI. And that's where I think AI literacy and the need for people to keep on playing with ChatGPT is so essential not to write content. It's you have to keep playing around to try and write code, try figure out how you can make like a data visualization if you don't know JavaScript, you know? The simplest example I have is if you ever have to form, if you have like an Excel spreadsheet and you have to format it into HTML or something for a story, and this is like something you're not looking forward to, you can do this with ChatGPT yourself. You can, you know, you can paste the, I mean, if you're comfortable doing this with your, with your data, you can paste it into ChatGPT. You can give it an example or a description of what you want. And it will do the heavy work of generating the actual output HTML or whatever for you. So these are little things you can start playing with right away. And once you see it work for you on one of these things, you're like, wow, I just saved myself 20 minutes or 30 minutes. The wheels start turning. You can really get creative. Chris, you've really like blown my mind, I'd say, especially with the <laughs> the last idea that you just dropped that you're working on right now, the last project, because I am so excited to hopefully see this soon on Toronto Worse when I go into Toronto, when I go onto the website and be able to like when you're moving to a new place in a new city and you want to know what the news is like that, is it safe? What's like, what's the school system like over there? And you want to know news. It's it's so difficult to find on the web and it's only what Google shows you. But here, that's what you're creating and that's what it's going to be so different about what you're building and what why I come to your website rather than finding it on Google is because of that audience experience that you're building. 
I'm so glad to hear that. And what I love about it is the other side of this businesses have the same problem. You know, like they move to a neighborhood or they arrive in a place and they want to try to get to know who's there and find the people. And that is so hard today. It used to be a lot easier. You go to the, the radio station and the newspaper and you've got 80% of your local audience covered. And that's just not true anymore. And, you know, Main Street is dying, not just because Amazon exists and, it, and is out there, but because it's harder for new local businesses to find their their customers these days. So I feel like this is an awesome opportunity. It's like ready to help revive local local cities, local media ecosystems. This has just been such a fascinating conversation, Chris. Yeah, I'm like, I'm glad I enjoyed it. You know, like I know we are keeping in touch quite a bit from now on, especially and like as soon as I heard about Toronto Wars and all of the cool products that you're going to be building and all of these cool AI products, I think it's really going to push innovation in local news. I must say you're probably one of the most innovative local news company that I have come about. So one of the biggest things is I've been speaking about is generative AI search experience. And yeah, I want to, before we conclude, I actually want to talk to you about this. Generative AI search is really going to be changing the way people find information, right? It's extremely powerful and it's easy to implement, which is so different from traditional search in, in the technical backend side. It's so easy to build compared to what I was building 10 years ago for, for plain text search. And if you've played around with Microsoft Bing, you see, because like, I use it a lot, I use it way more than Google from time to time nowadays because I just ask it a question and it gives me an answer and I can just keep on going deeper instead of having to read an article. And what a turnaround for that product. I'm so impressed with what they were able to do in the last year. It's really been pretty impressive. Yeah, but it's really then they decide what content needs to be shown, which I mean, they already do, but they only have like links to five content. Now, what happens to like local news publishers? What happens to just... They only decide which five news publishers should probably be linked to over there. They're not showing you pages and pages of search results that we're used to right now. Like what happens then to Chris's Toronto worse, you know, like your local news company, you have to be competing with Toronto Star for a news. And would you be able to get that bargain? Like it's they become the deciding factors. We worried about that a lot early on. We tried to build an experience that you really need to be on our site to get the full experience for the content that we build. So if you, if you were to take it and put it in the Google News interface or something where you lose it, like the essence of the article disappears. We can't prevent people from doing that and we won't prevent them. But you, for us, the essence of the article really exists on our platform. And it's, it's really difficult to scrape or copy or, or anything without really lifting the entire digital infrastructure, which I, I know how hard it is to operate. So I'm, I don't expect anybody to do that. So for me, that's really important. But you've got a good point about when people are getting direct answers from search instead of like links that, that they then read and then figure out the answers for themselves, that really changes how people find media. It's going to change what media is. The good news is I think that LLMs themselves are and will continue to be pretty bad at like verbatim producing information for you because, you know, a lot of the data out there isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily accurate or correct or factual, and they're going to be learning everything. So pretty much every AI search solution involves an element of, you know, you, you give it a query and then there's a search done on a vector database that sort of looks at a bunch of different information that's behind the scenes and then provides that to the LLM in order to answer the question. And owning that information, right? That's what media companies do today. They all have deep libraries of that information. That's really, really important. And I think that's where I think there are copyright issues with people like like Bing, you know, storing that content on their devices and using it as ways to augment the prompts when they're when they're responding to you. So in the long run, I feel like there's a rich opportunity for media companies that have deep content libraries to provide their data in a convenient way for people to build on top of and to get paid for that. So even if maybe the reader is not reading it, right, the LLM is reading it. And because the LLM is reading it, you're still able to get paid for that. And I think that's the correct way for it to work. It's less about when the models are trained and more about when they're used. I think that's really when, when things are much more important. 
Yes, that's when the copyright actually comes into play. It's about how are they using it? Maybe they're just training it, but they've trained on like everything on the internet. So the copyright issue maybe comes more into play in terms of how are they using it to produce their answers right now and the information. And when people talk about like a chatbot on the criminal code or something like that, right? And you can ask questions and it reads the, you know, the law and it's able to reproduce, you know, answers for you. You know, at the end of the day, what's behind the scenes is somebody's taken the whole law and it's broken into little pieces and stored it in a database in a way that the AI can access and find the data easily. But that data is still stored in behind there and used verbatim to prompt the LLM when it's responding to your questions. You don't necessarily see it in your chat with these sort of tools when people create it, but all of that data is being given to the LLM along with your question in order to, to generate the correct answer. You know, that's a spot where newspapers and news publishers you know, for right now, we talk a lot about text for this, but in the future, images are going to be a huge part of this. Video is going to be a big part of this. So a lot of the content, you know, this really good structured, high quality content that news publishers have, that's the stuff that you give the LLM to produce factual answers and factual responses. And that's going to become increasingly valuable over time. This has been so exciting to really talk to you, Chris. I mean, we've spoken quite a bit about all of this, but every time I speak to you, you always keep blowing my mind with new insights and new ways for me to think about AI. And we're always on the same wavelength, which I really love about how we're thinking about this. I do feel like an outsider. So I love talking yeah. to you about this stuff. <laughs> We two outsiders uh, talking uh, more from the tech perspective. And that's what I really like about it. And you're really pushing the needle in terms of how we would be creating experiences for audiences on our websites. And I've always been talking about, you know, reimagining the homepage. And that's what you're doing. You're building that authentic experience, unique experience for your audience on your site. And that's why I think you really have an edge, you know, when generative AI search comes about and becomes mainstream or any of that, people will still come to Toronto worse because of the experience of trying to find information where they are and you have localized it. It's not just content you're producing. As you said, I'm going to be using this quite a bit, code as content. That's what you're doing. And that's the unique experience about what's so different about Toronto Wars and I absolutely love what you're building. And as a Torontonian, thank you for doing this because you're putting us in the spotlight and bringing innovation to the Canadian media landscape where it's so badly needed. So thanks for doing what you're doing, Chris. This has just been fascinating. And I'm going to keep coming back, I think, to you and keeping tabs on what's happening with Toronto Wars. I'll be seeing it quite a bit, too. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. This is a really fun conversation. I really enjoy this stuff. Like it gets me excited. You know, I always enjoy talking about it. I, I can see that. I can see the passion and enthusiasm <laughs> you have for what you're doing right now. And it's been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time. And I know as a small news publisher, you're balancing a lot. So thanks for sharing all of these insights. And I think it's really helped our listeners rethink about how maybe we are using LLMs in journalism. Great. Thank you. That was Kristen, the founder and publisher of Toronto Worse. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots.